As we were recording this episode, it was announced that Nichelle Nichols, who famously portrayed Lieutenant Naota Uhura on Star Trek The Original Series, has passed away. We're very saddened and touched by this loss. Uh, we've both seen Nichelle in person many times, and she was always a very nice lady, very gracious, and very warm and, and inviting. She was an inspiration to millions. The last time we saw her was at uh, Shore Leave a few years ago, and you could tell she was much older there. She didn't do a panel or anything, but she was still very nice and still spoke to everyone. The Star Trek community mourns this loss. This episode is dedicated to her memory. Hailing frequencies closed. On this exciting episode of Starpod Trek, we consider the Star Trek contents of Starlog Magazine in issues 41 and 42 from 1980. Bob Turner and Kelly Casto discuss David Gerald's commentary about Star Trek fans overtaking science fiction conventions. Conceptual designer and concept artist Darren Docterman relates what it was like to work on Star Trek The Motion Picture 4K Director's Edition. Joe Motes of Vulcan Entertainment tells us what it is like to run a Star Trek convention. Klingon Assault Group members consider how Mark Leonard portrayed the first Imperial Klingon we see in the motion picture. Plus, the making of Star Trek The Motion Picture Memoir by Susan Sackett and Gene Roddenberry. And more on this episode of... Starpod Trek. Greetings and felicitations. Hip, hip, hoorah, tally-ho. Hey, my little Georgia Peach. Hey, Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and watched Star Trek reruns when it was on syndication. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what it was like to be a Trekkie years ago. But we leave the non-Trek-related content to our other podcast, Starpod Log. Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog magazine, or read it for free online at archive.org. If you would like to comment on the subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows, we might include your comments on a future episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. We will be attending the Waylate Playdate Star Trek Night at the Adventure Science Center in Nashville, Tennessee. Actually, we've been invited as presenters there. That's right. We're going to be presenting a panel, and we will have a fan table set up. This will be on August 12th. If you have plans or in or around Nashville at that time, definitely want to go to the Adventure Science Center. It's kind of funny because science centers around the country are always geared towards kids. But sometimes science centers will block off a night and have it for adults, 21 and over, and adjust the programming 
for a more mature level. We've done these Star Trek nights before. They did one that they called Star Trek versus Star Wars, and we had a table there, and it was a lot of fun. We we went as Andorians at that one and participated in the costume contest and just met a lot of people. They had, they had a show in the planetarium, too. It was a lot of fun, so a lot of great things going on there. Yes, we highly check, recommend checking out this science center because at the core, Star Trek is science fiction, but it's based on science fact. And the weekend of August 19th through 21st, we will be in Gatlinburg, Tennessee for the Starfleet Region 1 Summit, Starfleet International Fantastic Fan Club, long-running fan club. It's the largest in the world. And uh, we are members of this club, and so we decided to go to their summit, which is their meeting for basically their, their regional area. And they, they do it every year, and it's a lot of fun meeting other Star Trek fans. I think fandom is one of the things that a lot of newer fans don't even know exists. Because for years before the internet, that's how we knew other Star Trek fans, is through snail mail. But there are still meetups that are no celebrities, no conventions, just fans going out to dinner and having group activities uh, in a hotel. Yeah, we're going to the hotel. They they do have programming, so they said they're going to have panels and they're having an auction and a banquet, so a lot of things going on there. I love it because it's like an old-school meetup for Star Trek fans. Yes, it, it mostly focuses on, on the people, going there and meeting people and talking. In fact, one of the benefits of joining Starfleet International is, as its namesake, is having international camaraderie. Uh, we just took a trip to Europe, and we met with uh, another member of Starfleet that lives in Paris, Caroline Signal. Having lunch with her was amazing because it's one of those moments where you truly realize how Star Trek has affected people all over the world. And we've also met, you know, through Facebook a lot of a lot of people too in Starfleet International. So it's just it's this huge club where you can you come together through Star Trek. And of course, Labor Day weekend, the grandest of them all. The Trek Track at DragonCon. And, of course, we go to DragonCon every year. We will be presenting two panels on the Trek track, as well as moderating two panels on the comic book track. But with regards to the Trek track, let's tell our listeners what we'll be doing there. We're doing the fan film panel again. This year we're going to have different guests than we had last year, so if you're thinking about diving into the wonderful world of Star Trek fan films, definitely want to join our panel discussion. And we're doing a panel on Starlog magazine um, about Star Trek. Because we know that originally Starlog started out as a Star Trek magazine. And Starlog always had Star Trek content in it. So we're going to talk about that, about the history of Star Trek in the greatest science fiction magazine of all time. Starlog magazine, issue number 41, December 1980. We would like to welcome longtime Star Trek Vulcan convention promoter Joe Motes to the show to discuss the B. Joe Trimble penned article on how to run a con. Thanks for joining us, Joe. So uh, give us a history on, on how you ran your Star Trek conventions. When I started doing them, um, I basically wanted 
I had gone to a few where they were like nine in the morning to four in the afternoon and everybody went home. And I wanted to do the ones that ran on the whole weekend. Um, so um, I started in Miami where I was living at the time and uh, it was successful. We had films all night long. We had panels. Uh, of course, the stars came on, did the Q&A, signed autographs. Um, and then um, after a few times of doing it, I started expanding. It was first in Florida. So went from Miami on to Orlando and then Orlando on to Tampa. And then after a while, uh, I was being invited to go to other cities. So I started going to Atlanta, Cleveland, Baltimore, Dallas. Um, I then I had taken a new partner. Uh, her name was Ruth Ann Devlin, um, and uh, which I needed because it was very hard trying to do everything between hotels and contracts with the stars and, and everything else. So that's how I got started. So that's great. So, yeah, you were all over the southeast, and, um, and I used to live in Atlanta, and I remember when you first came to Atlanta, and uh, you had Patrick Stewart. I think it was 91. That was at the Castlegate Hotel. Such a great hotel. At, at the time, I loved that hotel. I know it got run down later, and now it's been torn down. Right. The last time I was in Atlanta, they had a new, uh, like, uh, a mall or something there. Yeah, and there, but, but I remember so well because there were a lot of cons at that hotel, and it actually looked like a castle on the outside. Right. And Patrick Stewart was my... Uh, the biggest, I mean, I had already done uh, um, other stars like Jonathan, and of course, by then I had already worked with all the originals. Um, but when we did Patrick, it, that was the biggest convention, and it wound up being the biggest till I retired. Uh, 3,900 uh, fans showed up. Uh, the lines went from the floor that Patrick was signing on to the outside of the building and up up the outside stairs to the top floor. And he just Amazing. And he went ahead and signed for everybody. That is so cool. And, yeah, he was such a great guest. He uh, was. It was the first so, time we ever worked with him. Well, well, so what was it like, though, to, to like to work out contracts with the stars? Well, every, everybody was different. Some stars have their, uh, like, a friend or uh, – the regular movie agent or TV agent don't want to do the uh, conventions. So mostly we, some of the stars, we do like for the originals, I dealt with them directly, uh, except for Nem uh, Nimoy Shatner and uh, DeForest Kelly. They had um, people that uh, took care of it for them, and it wasn't their, uh, their movie agent. Um, but for the other ones, like Next Generation, D-Space Nine, uh, Voyager, uh, there were fans that were friends of theirs that wound up doing um, doing the work for them, doing the uh, contract signings and all. And as a matter of fact, some of the stars, there were stars, uh, Aaron Gray, uh, one in particular, she became an agent. And uh, if you remember Aaron Gray, she was in uh, Buck Rogers in the 25th century. I do. I remember her right. as Wilma. Somebody some of these stars figure, well, you know, I'll make money making movies and TV shows, but I'll also try and make money on the side of uh, contracting uh, stars. So they wound up getting a bunch of stars and contracting them. And that's how it, 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 everything revolved little by little. 
you had asked me a question the other day about uh, um, the why uh, the, the the stars signing autographs and charging. I want to say because that they that was, they didn't charge back then. They did not write, and what happened was uh, it never that never crossed my mind until LeVar Burton gave me a call at home. He saw an ad somewhere. And he said, uh, so you're at, well, first it's funny because he calls up and he says, hi, uh, Joe Motzen says, this is me. He says, this is LeVar Burton. And I said, LeVar Burton, that's in uh, Star Trek? He said, yes, that's me. He says, uh, I like you doing the show, and I don't remember what city it was in. And he says, but I would like to come to that show. And I said, LeVar, I already got all the contracts and everything's already set. I just don't have the budget to be able to pay somebody else. He said, no, no, what I want to do is I want to come. Just give me a table. And get me a, a hotel room, and I'll make my money off the autographs. Uh, so I said, okay, uh, we'll do that. So um, the show went on. He did real good. And then he came up, and he asked me on, uh, on that Sunday, would I like to get him for other shows in the same manner? And I said, yeah, that would be work out great because that means – I have more money to be able to pay for somebody else to come in. And uh, he was happy. He made he made more money selling his autographs than he did if he were been paid. So Yeah, so uh, like it was it was Lavar's Burton it was his idea like to first uh, the first one to do that, to sign autographs just for money and, and not have the, the con uh, pay him to be there because he could just make money from the autographs. Right. And then that gave me the idea that I can get more stars, uh, minor caliber, in other words, um, secondary, not the primary, to come in. And so we started approaching all these other stars, uh, like, like let's say like the Bill Campbells and uh, Michael and Sarah. Uh, so they would come, bring their photos, and they would charge for the uh, for their autographs. And that's how I got started. Uh, and then years later, I realized that creation is doing it. So I guess they got the idea for me. Uh huh. I want to assume they got the idea for me because I don't go to creation shows, so I don't know. Well, well. So what were some of the challenges that you faced along the way that you had to overcome? Well, the biggest challenge was creation. They really didn't want us around. They, you know, they thought they owned the whole United States, and uh, so we got to the point where we eventually walked. Uh, well, Roseanne actually did the negotiating. It's very tough, like for me to negotiate with them, because I'm a Marine, and I'm, I lose I lose my temper pretty fast. So basically, he says, "Okay, here's what we'll do: you stay out of our cities. That's what they told us, and we'll stay out of your cities." So, and that was about the biggest challenge. Um, and the funny thing about it, they try to do a cruise out of Miami, and they wound up canceling it. They just couldn't get the people because the people were already used to mine. Uh, well, so at least you got them on that, and and uh, at least that yeah, staying out of your territory is good because they're so huge. Right, and we did. The only thing time that we went to Los Angeles, it was their territory, but it was as a favor for Bill Campbell and I did a con- we did five conventions that were called William Campbell Fantasticons, and what they were was the money we raised was donated to the Motion Picture and Television Fund which is the hospital that took care of the stars. And uh, because of that, they 
they knew we weren't competing with them. So, and, and it was open to everybody, and not only Star Trek, but we had all kinds of stars coming to this. And there were five of them done. They were in Los Angeles. Um, but uh, I mo- almost all the stars I worked with, almost everyone, I want to say 99% of them, were great. We never, if we ever had a star that gave us a problem, we just never invited them back to another show. So everybody liked coming to our shows. And on Sunday, after, and most, many of them would leave on a Monday. Sunday, we all go out to a restaurant nearby and have a great time between us, the staff, and the stars. And that's the way it was. Uh, it was friendly. I believe that everybody that came to our shows should get an autograph. Uh, so that's why I always worked with all the stars to make sure that everybody had to sign, had to get an autograph. Now, we pushed the, the autograph people. I mean, we tried to, if somebody stopped on the table to try and talk, we like push them out of the way because we want to make sure everybody got an autograph. And that was my, uh, my thing. Yeah, I see that. So, but yeah, I remember your cons were a lot of fun and I kind of, I thought your, your cons were just like, um, like the fan run cons. They, I mean, I didn't realize it's that it was really a corporate con, but cause I considered it more fan friendly, like a fan run con. Well, it, it was, we try to make it fan, but I mean, let's face it. If you're going to do, you're going to be in the business of doing conventions. You want to make some money. Right. Uh, but, yeah, uh, and you, you did. You could make money and still be friendly, which was great. Right, and that's the way I looked at it. And my fans, my uh, my staff was instructed that, you know, everybody, if anybody came to complain, the customer was always right. Um, I, when this friend of mine created a Wikipedia page for Volcon, um, he wrote thing. He had gone to a lot of my shows in Atlanta and Orlando, so he knew some. Of course, when he put all the conventional, he only put the ones that he was in. But he showed me how to do it, so I updated it. But one of the things he had put on there, which if I would if I would have been thinking, I would have done it. Uh, but he put down that when Joe Motes retired, he was the only convention promoter that never uh, never screwed a star, never screwed a hotel, and never screwed a fan. Wow. Yeah, that and, is great. So you're the yeah. only one like like in the US or Well no oh no no. There have been many other promoters. But there I were I mean that, that never that never did all of that. Right. That never screwed a star. Right. There uh there were there were promoters that uh went belly up, the stars didn't get paid, hotels didn't get paid, fans that had put the money in advance lost it. Oh yeah, there were not everybody could be a promoter. I lucked out, you know. It's uh, it was being at the right place at the right time. I mean, and the reason I got into the picture was, I had just gotten out of the Marine Corps, and I was I was um, working for an air. I was working for Eastern Airlines, but I was taking college courses for the computer field. And there was a friend of mine that I got with him. Uh, he was taking classes with me in the computer field at the college here in Miami, and he, uh, he came up to me and says, hey, man, there's a Star Trek convention in West Palm Beach. I don't have a car. Can you drive me, and I'll pay for your gas? And I, I said, oh, what's Star Trek? And he said, uh, oh, it's a, it's a space show. I said, okay, I'll go ahead and take you up there. And I went ahead, and uh, when we were going around, checking into the hotel, uh, we bumped, I bumped into uh, George. Um, actually, physically bumped into him. And um, we started, 
I, I, you know, picked them up and all that, and we start talking, and my friend panicked and said, oh, my God, that's the guest. And I, says, and I looked at George, and I said, uh, oh, I know who you are. I just saw you a couple of weeks ago on TV with John Wayne, uh, the Green Berets. And he's, you know, his funny laugh, and he said, uh, you've never seen Star Trek? And I said, no, sir, when Star Trek started and ended, I was in Vietnam and in the Marine Corps. So he um, said, I'll tell you what, I'm, I just finished running. I'm going to take a shower. Why don't you come and meet me at the cafeteria um, and we'll eat and talk some more. So we started talking, and he uh, told me that at the time he was a commissioner for the city of Los Angeles, and he was actually working on getting the rapid transit system, the one they now have in L.A. Um, so we became friends, and uh, he told me, uh, actually, in that convention, the promoter came up and asked George, i got to put somebody assigned to you uh, for the weekend. And George said, Joe here is going to, it's going to take care of me. Uh, he's a Marine, just like that. And uh, uh, the guy looked at me and said, have you been to done Star Trek? And said, look, i never seen Star Trek in my life, which was true. And that's how I got started. George and I became friends. Uh, he started telling me uh, where he was appearing. Uh, I was working for the airline, so I flew for free. So I would fly to all these shows around the country. And he introduced me to the rest of the cast. And then after about doing this for about a year and a half, uh, he uh, said, "How? why don't you get uh, involved in doing conventions? And I'm one of these that, you know, you, just, you really have to push me hard to do anything, um, especially taking gambles. So uh, I went ahead and said, well, George, if I do a convention, you're going to be the first one I hired. So about a year later, I, I, I had already started working on it, promoting it. And I did my first convention in Miami. And um, at that time, Star Trek was running, I think it was about 5.30 in the afternoon, Monday through Friday. So I was buying commercials every day on TV. And there really hadn't been any conventions in, in South Florida. So I brought him in, and uh, the hotel was set for 1,000 people that I can seat. And when they uh, got ready to open the hotel, the line stretched all the way to the parking lot, and I had 2,000 people. And there was no way to seat them in. So George and I, we, we, he said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to just change the schedule. Uh, I'll speak to the first 1,000, then you're going to move them all out. I'll speak to the second 1,000, and I'm a fast signer, and I'll sign for all of them. So uh, that was the start. That's how I got started. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. And so you- – yeah, it's it's the good kind of problem to have, like twice as many people as you expected. And George, we, I mean, I've seen him at lots of cons, so I know he he's real nice. And so he would just, you know, it's amazing. He helped you and said, "We'll, we'll do this, and we'll get through all the autographs." That 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 is so cool that he did that. But I know it's it's in character with him. It is. And then of course he was the one that introduced me, started introducing me to everybody else: Jimmy, uh, Walter, um, Michelle. And, and that's how I got started, little, little by little. So I started doing them in Miami, and then I started expanding uh, once I had Florida, Tampa, Orlando, South Florida. Then I started moving out. By then, I had met Ruthann, and uh, it, it was very hard because I had a 40-hour-a-week job. you got to remember this. I'm working for the airlines. So I'm doing this, and then I'm doing the conventions. So uh, that's when Ruthann came into the picture. We started expanding and started leaving uh, Florida. Okay, so uh, what advice would you give to anyone who wants to start a convention? (laughs) 
I've had a couple of people actually ask me about that and I said, things have changed because I've been told now, and I've seen it at Supercon, where I think the stars now come, you don't pay them a fee. They make their money on selling the autographs, but they have a deal with the promoters where say, okay, uh, okay, when, when I uh, retired, uh, Nimoy and Shatner were getting the same amount of money. I'm not going to mention it here on how much it was, but it was up there. I'm going to assume that Nimoy, of course, uh, Shatner's still doing shows. Matter of fact, he's this weekend. I think he's in Tampa. I think what it is is he goes to uh, to promoters and basically say, "My guarantee is forty thousand, or whatever, you know." And he sell and 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 I've seen him. The last time he was a supercon, I think he was selling his autographs for seventy five dollars each. So, uh, um, if his guarantee say is forty thousand, if they don't meet that then the promoter has to make up the difference. And uh, I, what I used to do with the, with the stars, which is probably it's like a crossover from before, I, I got toward, towards the point I was telling the stars, part of the contract was you will um, do a Q&A, you will sign autographs for everybody, one autograph for everybody, and you will sign 200 photos for me, which I will sell at not against you, but at other conventions. Um, and I will furnish the photos. So they will sign it, and they will actually sign it. The higher the stars, the less photos I will give them, naturally. But, like, uh, if you go to my eBay, I have an eBay, and I have over 400 items, and they're all autographed. So to give you an idea, when I retired, got out of the business in 2007, these contracts were the stars. I had over 20,000 autographs. So I'm, you know, I'm still selling on eBay every day. But you used to pay them a lump fee. Oh yeah, no, I would pay them a flat fee. That the flat fee included, they would sign, they would, I mean, they would do a Q and A for an hour each day, Saturday and Sunday, and then they would sign autographs each day for everybody that that had a paid ticket. Yeah, see, when when I started going to conventions in the '80s, that's how it was. Everybody yeah. got one autograph for free, maybe two. Sometimes it's sliding two or something, but the price of the autograph was included with your admission to the convention. Yes. So, and, so in closing, Joe, when you go to SuperCon in Florida, how would you say the convention scene has changed from when you were putting on your Volcon conventions starting well, in the early '80s? It's a madhouse because they do have they do do Q and A, but uh, I they're not. When I was doing my shows, my shows were strictly sci-fi. They actually became strictly sci-fi and then science because when I started bringing the auto, the astronauts in. But from what I've seen at SuperCon, people go there. You have everything. You have uh, oh I can't even think of uh, where people dress up, cosplay. You have cosplay. You have all kinds of stuff, and there's no really panels going on. You know, every once in a while, they'll say, okay, well, George is going to come on stage and talk for a while and, and stuff like that. So it's totally different. We had a schedule. Everybody that was a guest went on stage and do, did their Q&As. Uh, now it's totally different. It's, it, it, and it's a mixture. All the, all the shows are mixture. It's a mixture of sci-fi, of fantasy, of horror, cosplay, you name it. Oh, they have sitcoms, wrestlers, like anything you could think yes. of. Yeah. 
it's more of a pop culture con now because all, all these other actors and, and other celebrities, just, you know, they figured out they can sign autographs for money, too. So they're coming to these things. Right. You know, I, I tell friends that I came in at the right time and I left at the right time. Uh, I came in in the late 70s when things were starting to pick up. And I was through it through the 80s and the 90s, which were the, the, the highlights. That's when the top of uh, the conventions were being done all around the country. Uh, and then when I retired in 2007, things just started going downhill. Uh, even the people that bought my company, it, it just changed. I mean, they tried to do it close to mine, but then they started bringing all these other people that weren't Star Trek in and all that. So uh, it was changing. Um, that's when I said, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad I'm out of the picture. Those people that do conventions now, they have an advantage I did not have. I did not have Facebook. I did not have Instagram. Uh, I did not have any of the stuff, the social medias that are out there. So I had, I only had commercials on TV and hopefully newspaper articles. And that was and, my And Starlog Magazine. And Starlog Magazine, which I, I always uh, um, advertised on it. So um, Starlog was our internet. So, I mean, that's. That and and you you had to have a mailing list too because I remember getting in the mail a list of all the Star Trek conventions that that were regional and right so your mailing list had to be gold for you. It was, and on top of that, it, 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 yeah. okay, just to give you an idea, when I did the George, the K, convention, my very first one, I didn't have a mail. I didn't even have a mailing list. Uh, it was all commercials on TV. Every day, constant, and because there was the first time something like that, the Miami Herald wrote a nice article about it. Uh, so um, that was good. But what? I, luckily, a friend of mine that was with me said, "You know what? You need to do. You got a lot of people here. Give them. Go out and buy. Um, go out and buy uh, index cards, and have everybody sign their name and address on it." Yes. When I when I did my second convention, which was about. Uh, Six months later, and it was I did it in Fort Lauderdale. I had a staff of all my friends from my staff that lived near me. We would come together about a month or so before into my house. My wife would cook things for them and other stuff. We would sit down, and we would go hand by hand, write the write their names on on the on the flyer and mail it out because back then we. Personal home computers were just starting to come out, and so I had no mailing list to be able to create labels. It wasn't after I bought a, a home computer and I was able to figure out how to do a mailing list that I was able to start putting these things into the mailing list. So the first – I would say the first six, seven conventions I did uh, were all handwritten, and that was uh, – Yeah, I, and I was on your mailing list too, so yeah, that and it was great because that was – you know, that and Starlog was how I knew when you were having another con. Right. Yeah. And Starlog was very good. Uh, Dave, Dave McDonald and I became very good friends. Matter of fact, we're, we're still friends on uh, Facebook, and we still talk back and forth. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, it, it, like I said, I came in at the right time, and I retired at the right time. And luckily, computers came in right around the time that, that I was already doing them. Well, thanks, Joe. Uh, it was great talking to you.
Joe, you're a storehouse of information. We're we're so glad for all you've contributed to the Star Trek community over the years. The great bird of the galaxy, Gene Roddenberry, once said, If humanity is to survive, we will have learned to take a delight in the essential differences between people and between cultures. We will learn that differences in ideas and attitudes are a delight, part of life's exciting variety, not something to fear. Starpod Trek, celebrating Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. The Making of Star Trek, the Motion Picture, by Susan Sackett and Gene Roddenberry. This was a publication that came out in 1980, shortly after the release of the motion picture. The cover states, The dream of millions comes true. The whole incredible backstage story. And on the reverse of the book, it says, The motion picture that was made because millions of people demanded it. This is the full, exhilarating story of a journey as exciting and as grueling as any the Starship Enterprise has ever taken. From the birth of Gene Roddenberry's great idea to the completion of a great movie. A journey that carried cast, crew, and hundreds of behind-the-scenes people as far as imagination, skill, and the latest special optical effects technology could take them. This is how it happened. The unexpected problems, setbacks, daily struggles and victories from the reunion of Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Scotty, Uhura, Chekhov, and the rest of the crew to the final moments of triumph in the making of Star Trek The Motion Picture. Susan Sackett, I had such respect for her when I first met her in the 80s at the Star Trek convention. And you, you find out anything she writes about, she's writing about it directly from Gene Roddenberry. So... Anything that she writes, and, and this is a publication not only of things from her vantage point, but also letters and memoirs from Gene Roddenberry's desk of everything leading up to the motion picture. So essentially, it's from the mid-70s up until roughly 1980. So her memoirs on everything, and she has she has a pretty good perspective on this. I mean, she she's on the inside. And um, it, it's very similar to her, her articles that were in Starlog magazine. She wrote for Starlog reporting on the motion picture. And you're going to find that out, that we've been covering all the articles leading up to the motion picture in Starlog. And you're going to have some memories there saying, okay, she, she essentially took her writings for Starlog and compiled them all together. But what I especially like about this is the personal touches. She's expressing things from her vantage point, and as we very well know, the frustration from the fans of going back and forth. Is it going to be a TV show? Is it going to be a telemovie? Is it going to be a motion picture? This is all chronicled in this book. But what's especially exciting is the fact that there are numerous call sheets, there are memos, uh, everything that she could find in the office to photocopy that fit in is listed here. Uh, here's some interesting tidbits. This is a letter to Gene Roddenberry dated June 22nd, 1976 from John Povell. Subject, Director's List. I would guess that the following people on the list will be unavailable, though they would be good for the project. These were the ones that were considered for directing the motion picture. Their first pick... Francis Ford Coppola, 
<laughs> Can't imagine that. <laughs> Second one. Now remember, this is 1976. Steven Spielberg. Okay. Well, he wasn't as famous then. But, no, yeah, but, but Jaws. Yeah, he was known. Yeah. He he was known for doing action adventure. Wasn't known for his sci-fi yet. Wasn't known as the E.T. and 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 Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But can you imagine? Those would be top two choices at this time in 1976. Well, the thing is, those are probably the directors that everyone wanted. So I think that's the reason they put them on there. It's like, oh, wouldn't and it be cool And these were the we young, hot these? directors at that time. Do you remember? Yeah. Like, the, these were the, um, the directors that were just – had flourishing ideas, that wanted to do such very unique things. Number three choice, George Lucas. He okay. just had his THX 1138 movie. Can you imagine – I guess that they were like, hey, this guy's making this film, Star Wars. It's probably going to be a one-shot. Now when he's done with that, he'll want to do something real like Star Trek. Can you imagine the, the conversations that were going on in the room? There would have been funny to see him do Star Trek, yeah. But I think, but, but you said this was in 76? I mean, he was... Yeah, he was busy then preparing He was filming Star Wars, Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I, I think that that was some of the conversations had to be when these guys are done doing what they're doing. Let's give them something else. Number four choice was Robert Wise. And he's the one they got, yeah. But when you look at that list, how does Robert Wise even fit in to those previous three? Yeah, he was the older one. And they were the younger ones that were that were hot and in demand at the time. Another curiosity is looking over the budget sheet for building sets on the motion picture. So stage nine would contain the bridge, the corridors, the transporter, medical and Kirk's quarters, and the engine room, as well as Ilea's quarters, which would be a modification of Kirk's quarters. So let's just talk about stage nine right there. All those pieces, the bridge was estimated to cost two hundred and five thousand dollars. This is Which is a lot. Late nineteen I seventies mean, money. Yeah. yeah, a lot back then and it's still a lot now. Now here's the curious thing. That was the cost of the bridge. Just over two hundred thousand dollars. The corridors and the transporter, along with medical and Kirk's quarters, would cost two hundred and fifty eight thousand dollars. I can't imagine all that being more than the bridge. Would it be the transporter was the bulk? It seems, yeah, it does seem strange because the bridge has all of the all of the computer consoles with the lights and everything, it just, and it seems bigger, and, and there's, there's more to it. It seems like there would be more pieces to it. The engine room was $100,000. you got to be kidding me. The engine room was half the price of the bridge? And then it turned out they really didn't even show it much. Exactly. Yet the San Francisco tran scene was $240,000. And you only see like... that for what, a minute? Yeah, I thought that was a, like a, a plain scene, really. It just had it had a lot of people in it. But, the, but just for the set, yeah, it doesn't seem like there was as much there. The recreation deck was the most expensive set of them all. $252,000. 
Okay. What am I missing? It's um. Well, they had a lot of different things in there. The, all the tables set up and all. Yeah, the thing is, that was a big room, and it, and it was so deserted. It, you know, I mean, I guess it was built for a lot of people. Like you, they want you to think that the whole crew goes there on their downtime. But in the movie, it, it was deserted because they probably cleared it out for Decker and Ilya. But I always thought that was strange. Like you have those two people in this big room. There's also intercommunication with regards to what rank each of the cast are going to be assigned to. So obviously, Kirk would be the captain. McCoy, Decker, Scott, and Spock would all be commanders. Sulu and Uhura would be lieutenant commanders. Chekhov, Chapel, and Ilea would be lieutenants. And Rand would be an ensign. Yet the very next day, on a date August 4th, 1978, the memo came through to Bob Flesher from John Povel saying, I was in error. Rand is not an ensign. She is a transporter chief. This means there should be no sleeve stripe on her costume. Well, I'm glad they caught that. But we can't have Rand being like a Harry yeoman. Kim. <laughs> be at, be an ensign for ten years, right? And she and we did see her move up later on, which was cool. But it was great that she's not an ensign anymore, or not a yeoman anymore. Now she's doing something that that um you know that that's a regular position on the ship that seems a little more useful. And it notes that originally, Robert Wise and sketch artist Maurice Zubinero were looking for different places to depict Vulcan. They wanted something hot. They knew that. So they were thinking about Afghanistan, Tibet, Turkey. And they were really zeroing in at one point on an ancient temple in a remote area of Turkey. But the budget would not allow them to travel overseas to that extent. So they settled in on Yellowstone National Park. I'll tell you what, I would never guess that that was right here in America. Driving distance from the studio. I thought it looked very alien the way they did it. it. It would have been cool if they could have gone to another country, but I, yeah, I can see how it wouldn't be worth it because they, I mean, the scene was only a few minutes anyway. So just to film such a, a small scene for the movie, it, it might as well be a place that's nearby. And they, you know, they're movie makers. They know how to dress it up and make it look like an alien planet. It took them three days to film that scene. And they said when they stayed at the hotel nearby Yellowstone, kids in there were enthralled that there was a movie being filmed and that stars would be staying at their hotel. At first, they didn't know what movie was being filmed, but then when Leonard Nimoy walked through the doors, everyone knew this had to be Star Trek because his face is so recognizable. That would have been awesome to be there and see that. <laughs> But Spock would have been, you know, wearing the robes, so he would have looked really different. And you know how he ha he had longer hair in the movie? He was wearing a wig it, for that scene. They said that the staff there, that the employees of the hotel, were actually making aluminum foil ears and wearing them <laughs> while working at the hotel because of the excitement of Star Trek cast being there. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I guess I would have done that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Overall, I mean, there's so many details on this book. We can make an entire podcast just breaking down chapter to chapter. This is something, if you're a Star Trek motion picture fan, it's a must for your library. Gemini 4, the first space war. Gemini 8, the first space docking. 
11, the first man on the moon, milestones of NASA manned spaceflight, and aboard all of them, Kang Instant Breakfast Drink, with its delicious natural orange flavor and full day's supply of vitamin C in every glass. Good, nutritious Kang for spacemen and Earth families. Starlog Magazine, issue number 42. Cover date, January 1981. Communications. Letters to Starlog Magazine. A call for Trek. Carol D'Andrea from Cincinnati, Ohio says, On October 8, 1980, on the 6.30 a.m. news on WKRC Cincinnati, a Hollywood reporter interviewed Gene Roddenberry. In the interview, Roddenberry said that Paramount is interested in doing Star Trek specials for TV, eight to ten of them, one and a half to two hours long. Everyone who wants Star Trek to continue, please, please write to Paramount expressing this desire. Remember, nice, polite letters, but write. Gene Roddenberry's going on the Cincinnati radio program saying there's going to be a bunch of TV movies on, and this is in 1980? Wow, so that must have been a plan. Crazy to think about it, huh? Yeah, I guess they were trying to do something like like to have a series, but it wouldn't be a full-out you know, series that would last all, se- all of a TV season. So a series of TV movies. That would have been neat if he could have done that. I would have loved it. Red Alert, shields up, load torpedoes. On board the Artemis Spaceship Bridge Simulator, you and your crew take command of the TSN Cygnus and defend Terran space against an alien invasion. Work together as a team in an interactive simulator environment created by Command Flight Adventure. Does your crew have what it takes to survive? Book your session today at commandflightadventure.com. Report to the bridge at Sanctuary Gaming in Clarksville, Tennessee. Hi, I'm Bob Turner. And I'm Kelly Casto. We are talking about The Rumblings by David Gerald in Starlog (laughs) issue 42. This was back in January 1981. Kelly, I have to interject here and just say that was January of my senior year in high school. What? I know. That was January of my... Uh, freshman year in high school. How about that? Doesn't that take you back a little bit when you see those dates? Yes. What really took me back was the cover. Here we see Mark Leonard in full Klingon makeup from the motion picture. God, it's an awesome photo though, it, isn't it? It is. It is. And just too brief a time on screen. So I really, yes, I agree. Like I wish he could have come back at some point as this Klingon commander. Yeah. And we would have seen more of him. That would have been cool. He was too busy playing Sarek. Probably, yes. (laughs) Well, in this issue's rumblings, David Gerald begins by telling how he overheard someone say at a science fiction convention that sci-fi fandom was better before all these Trekkies (laughs) showed up. This is pretty interesting stuff, isn't it? It is. Why the hate, man? It's it's like anything, isn't it? It's the old timers always don't like the new stuff that comes in. Remember when the next generation was new? Yeah. 
and a lot of old time classic Trek fans were going, I'm, I won't watch that. That doesn't have Kirk, Spock, and McCoy in it. Right. Right. Had the Enterprise. I think it's something like that, right? You just got yeah. a bunch of old fogies going, who, who are these new people invading our thing? Right. Right. Well, they, um, so he, the idea here, and he calls the article the good guys. And the idea here is, is the sci-fi community as a whole, not just Star Trek, but sci-fi is full of good guys. And he he goes on and says, you know, people saying that Trekkies have ruined the sci-fi community. Well, he lists a bunch of contributions that that Trekkies have um, added to the to the sci-fi community. What's the first one he mentions? Female well, fans, females, yes, going up from ten percent to almost fifty percent. Right. I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm all for the number of females going up. Yes. That's always a good thing. Yes. Well, and that could lead to the, the other thing that was kind of attached to it, which is sexual matters were often kind of tense in science fiction. (laughs) And now they're just a bit relaxed. So what do you think that means, Bob? Don't you have this vision, right, in the 50s and early 60s of these guys in suits with pipes? Yes. And the horn rim glasses walking around kind of all stuck up talking about, did you see the article by so-and-so? And And here come a bunch of Trekkies, right? And we've got the girls with us, and they're all a little uncomfortable. And It was a new generation. Yeah. Yeah, that 60s generation that was in their teens and 20s that liked Star Trek. Well. We know about that group and what they were like. They were a lot freer and a lot looser and they didn't have the hangups that the older generation had. And I think it's just right. a lot of that. Don't you right. think? Yeah, I think so. And, and even kind of one of his next points is that, you know, Trek is bringing females into the fandom by being inclusive in Star Trek and, you know, making it more aware of you know, really, there's been a lot of sexual oppression and discrimination. And, yes. And Star Trek, you know, basically there is not much of that. And his points about what Star Trek is bringing to sci-fi fandom and how it's a positive, I found that they mirrored a lot of what was happening in the 60s and 70s at that time. True. Yes. You know, he talks about um, uh, giving people a role, getting people involved, as even if they're just gophers. You've got fans now doing things, feeling like they're contributing. Yes. That was, you know, very similar to what was happening with a lot of movements and marches and, and people that normally wouldn't have stepped up or stepping up. It's all right. positive. It, all, it is all positive. And, and it also gave fans the idea of a future where we can all live together to make the universe a better place. That is very much a 60s dream or a 60s idea. It, it is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And then, you know, take it to the next step, Star Trek and media-oriented cons. He says, it's, you know, at the time, they're, they're really big in supporting charities, which, yes. you know, I'm assuming didn't happen before Star Trek. I don't think that it did. And, you know, he, he believes that this is important to, 
because of the Star Trek fans and, and sci-fi fans, uh, but it, it Star Trek is really driving this because Star Trek is more about a dream, you know, of, you know, I'll paraphrase peace and tolerance and, and inclusion and helping as opposed to, you know, I'm going to stay in my own little corner off to the side and I'm going to focus on my, my specialty in star or sci-fi fandom. Right. Right. I like this quote that he has. He says, these are the good guys. This is the most non-exclusive club in the world. The price of membership is just one truly unselfish act. Anything that helps make the world a little better place to be. Yes. Unquote. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. And that kind of sums up what David Gerald was talking about. You, you know, you might be an old time sci-fi fan or, or, um, aficionado was probably a word they liked. Yes. And didn't like those probably, probably look down your nose at these Trekkies, but these were good people and they were doing good works. Right. When I, I like the, he gave an, another kind of an example here where he bring, he brought up, um, him going to a Opticon four which was a, a convention held in October uh, in Northern California. And he re- he received the first star click award um, there, which basically it was a good sport award. And how, how he described it was, you know, there's uh, well, really he was talking to a bunch of people after the con and, you know, they were just reminiscing about what their experiences were and whatnot. And, um, a, a lady that helps with the organization and running the conventions, uh, and ha- has been one of David's favorite people in these conventions, uh, was there and she was saying, she was saying, you know, this, you got this award and it's very important to us because if it wasn't for you, and a, you know, a footnote as he describes it in one of his Star Trek books, she wouldn't have gotten into fandom. She would have, <laughs> like how she said, I would have been sitting on the couch, drinking a beer, getting <laughs> fat, um, not doing anything. And, and he motivated her. And then, you know, this is why she thinks he should get the award. Yeah. The, the story of Donya Current. Donya. Yeah. And he used her as an example for all volunteers and, and all of the positive qualities that I, that he saw in them stepping up and, and doing things for no pay at all. Yeah. Yeah. And that what, um, she says was the trigger for her. Really, he just put, as he said, put the information in front of her. She's the one that did all the hard work. And, and all of the other people, all the other good people, um, are doing the work, putting on these cons and, and all the backbreaking work that in, is involved. And he's just, he's lazy. He just writes the words. Everybody else does all the hard work around it. Right. Yep. Exactly right. It's a little bit of a defense of the good people, uh, you know, that are behind the scenes and he's, I, I had the feeling that David Gerald is uh, sticking up for them saying, Hey, look, you know, you can look down your nose at, at these people, but as the title says, these are the good people. I agree. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs>
Are you middle-aged or older and attend Dragon Con? Then check out the Dragon Con Over 40 Club on Facebook. It's a place where we share tips, socialize, and just have fun. In the meantime, stay tuned for more exciting programming from Star Pod Trek. Next on Channel 11, Star Trek. And now for our special guest... Darren Doctorman. Hey, Darren. Darren, we just got to say we love the TMP Director's 4K Edition. You and your team outdid themselves. Well, thanks very much. I, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, we've been getting lots of uh, wonderful feedback from uh, people who have seen the uh, film, Star Trek The Motion Picture, the Director's Edition uh, in 4K. And uh, we're very happy that uh, Paramount Plus has uh, provided us the opportunity to finish it at uh, film resolution. And uh, it's been a long time coming. It's been 22 years since we did the original Director's Edition on DVD. And, of course, uh, you know, close to uh, 43 years uh, from the original release of the theatrical version. So we're very happy with the results and very happy with the, uh, the response to the new project. So we've been going over Starlog magazine systematically, and we're at the point where it's the motion picture era. And we've been collecting experiences of what it was like to see motion picture for the first time, especially the emotional connections with the motion picture. Give our listeners an idea. Where did you grow up? How did you trek yourself? And how did you feel about the motion picture when it finally came to the screen? Well, when I was a kid, I uh, originally got in, uh, interested in the uh, animated series. It came out in 1973, and uh, I was six years old at the time. And uh, grew up until I was about 11 in uh, uh, suburban New York, New Jersey. Uh, and uh, when I was just about to turn 12, we moved to uh, suburban Chicago. And that's where I saw Star Trek The Motion Picture. Of course, I had been following Starlog Magazine 2 and all the uh, other sort of tidbits of uh, seeing the, the announcements of the motion picture. And I was very excited because I loved Star Trek and uh, was also a fan of 2001 A Space Odyssey and, and uh, Six Million Dollar Man and all those wonderful uh, 1970s uh, sci-fi experiences. And... Uh, you know, of course, this was right after Star Wars had come out, and uh, it was it was a golden age of uh, sci-fi entertainment. And uh, you know, hearing all the uh, all the buzz about Star Trek: The Motion Picture was really exciting. And we didn't realize it at the time, but this was the first time that a TV series had been made into a film using the same characters in different time periods. You know, they did a a, a theatrical version of the Batman show in 1966, but that was made by the same crew at the same time, so that doesn't really count. But Star Trek was truly a a next step in evolution for uh, what had yet to become a franchise. Uh, it's interesting because I grew up in Connecticut, and we would watch it on 11, 11, 11. live, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everyone w in the tri-state area knew that song. WPIX was the holy grail of, uh, of uh, entertainment at that time, 
and uh, man, lots of repeat shows on that channel. All all the repeats between that and uh, WNEW Channel Five, yep. they they shared uh, the burden of uh, of catching us up with uh, all the shows that had been made before we were around. And you know what? Growing up, I didn't realize there were repeats. All I knew was it was on Star Trek was on right after Batman. I just like watching it. Yeah, uh, it was uh, amazing, an amazing time, and I I remember that time very well. And uh, you know, PIX eleven was uh, a standard viewing place for all of this, and that's of course where I watch Star Trek five nights a week. <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. All right, so. <laughs> I can't overstate how amazing this director's cut is because initially we said, oh, no, this is another Paramount cash cow. There's going to be two extra minutes, and they're going to take our money from us. But this is totally gutting everything and putting it back together to its truest, purest form. So we've talked about the 4K cut previous on podcasts, and talking to you directly is is so awesome because we're able to ask some deep questions such as one of the fears that we had the group that we watch it with was your team was going to go all george lucas and reinvent it so it doesn't look like the original but it looks so modern that it's nearly unrecognizable you'd have han didn't shoot first moments things like that was there ever a time in the production where your team had to back away or there were some reminders that you wanted to keep it to the core and not refresh it too much? Well, remember, we, we did this project uh, 22 years ago originally with Robert Wise uh, supervising everything and having his say in all the decisions. And so that was uh, very, very much a statement of what would we have done uh, if they had had, you know, another six weeks of post-production. And the great thing about it was that there was no urge to, you know, quote-unquote Lucasify it um, because because we had the, you know, we had the man there and we had the intent. We had, you know, all the original storyboards and uh, original designs from the, the, his files from the USC library. Um, And we had a, we had a good guide of how to uh, proceed and uh, you know for most of it it was at that time it was to try and make everything new that we did fit with the feel of the uh, of the film in its current state you know on uh, as a an ntsc dvd release we wanted everything to be at the same level of that the approach this time was a little different because we wanted to boost the quality of every part of the film and uh, sort of uh, match the best possible scan uh, establishment of the film. And so thanks to uh, the Paramount uh, archives, uh, they were, you know, very cooperative and extremely helpful with finding as many of the uh, original elements that we could, and uh, they did an amazing transfer of the uh, of the film itself, and of course the uh, secondary scenes that were featured in the uh, extended longer version uh, that are integrated into the director's uh, edition. 
Uh, and I, I just to step back a little bit. Every time someone calls it the director's cut, I wince a little bit because it's it's so much more. It's so much more than the cut. It's a it's a new edit. It's a more uh, new visual effects. It's an amazing uh, sound mix. And so it's it's so much more than a cut. So I, I just like to well the name itself. I, they couldn't come up with a better name that was a little bit more different than than the previous one. Well, no, because it's it's the same project. It, it, it's just continued twenty two years later. That's it looks so much more refreshing, though. Well, yeah, obviously, because you know we we have gone into a, a much more refined technology. Uh, of uh, being able to preserve all the information that we can off these off the original film negative, uh, and we were able to go back to as many of the original negative sources that we could on all of the film, and uh, for stuff that uh, just you know either is uh, unfindable or uh, or in some instances uh, just destroyed, uh, we were able to refine the existing scans to a point that uh, it cleans up everything and it uh, it takes away the sort of uh, quote-unquote film of age that uh, that it might have had earlier um, but it's uh, it's it's really a, uh, an exciting way to sort of uh, approach that the previous project because we already had the perfect proof of concept for this which was the DVD version and uh, you know, any chance that we got to uh, make it better, we did. But better doesn't mean different. Uh, and so uh, we were we were completely guided by uh, Robert Wise's voice in our heads, uh, guiding us, you know, uh, to not make horrible changes to it. And uh, we we stuck extremely closely to uh, what was done before. Uh, but there's a couple uh, things that we had wanted to do back then. That uh, that we were able to uh, uh, readdress now, so that I, I, I'm very glad that we were able to do that. What are some of your proudest moments of things that you personally worked on in the production? I'm really happy with the uh, the main titles. Uh, you know, obviously throughout the years, people uh, comment, "Wow, well, why'd you change the main titles? And why why'd you do this? Why'd you do that? It looks." It looks fake. It looks uh, uh, computery, and uh, all that stuff. You know what? Everyone, everyone has a different opinion on things. And uh, what we were able to do back then was uh, a a just slightly upgrading of the, you know, what we call the Woody Allen credits, the white letters on black background. Um, and uh, we wanted to sort of, you know, make it how they would probably have done it then. And it was uh, a simpler sort of uh, rendering of the of the t- credits uh, over a star field and uh, it was uh, that was fine for then but you know when we go into the world of uh, 4k and uh, it demands a little more uh, 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 detail and a little more interest um, I was able to come up with a, a treatment of the credits that wasn't different than before but just sort of uh, makes it look like this is always what was there mm-hmm. and uh, that it, we were just not able to present it that way back then um but uh there's a little uh, a little easter egg in there that there is a, a detail of sort of sparkles that are in outlines of the credits on, on the main titles that uh there's a little uh, disturbance pattern and little glints on the edge of it and those glints are actually the moray from the V'ger transformation at the end 
Uh, we had the original elements for that, and I, I sort of uh, put them behind the uh, credits to give it a little interest. And I, it's, it's a fun little thing. Uh, some people will notice it if they squint a little bit, uh, but it, it really sort of uh, upgrades the, uh, the quality and the, and the texture of the main titles that uh, I think was a, a fun thing. That's so awesome. Well, we love the production, and we can't stop singing praises about it. So thank you for all that you do, and thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Keith R.A. DeCandido, and when I want to hear more about Klingons, I always listen to Starpod Trek. The Klingon Assault Group is a, is a group of fans who love Star Trek, costuming, Klingons, and just having fun. We're a bunch of Klingons international. Kapla! A lot of fan clubs take it, take it way too seriously. But how can you take it seriously when you're wearing a rubber head and a wig? We know we're silly, and we love it. To be or not to be. That is the question. One of the main things with Klingons is blood, blood and honor. Uh, it's blood drives. What we do is we challenge different clubs to donate more blood than we do, and they always lose. We always win. Normally, we take the blood from our enemies, put it in buckets, and then give it to the Red Cross. We are Klingon. We are a family that does this together. Mark Leonard, Star Trek's other alien. Now, many of us know Mark Leonard as being on Star Trek, the original series, not only being Spock's father, a Vulcan, but also a Romulan commander. But now, in the motion picture, we're seeing Mark Leonard as a Klingon. To join in this discussion, I have a variety of special guests. Adam, Des Moines, Iowa. This is uh, Mike McVeigh from uh, Chicago, Illinois, and I portray Captain Cordan Sutai Krandazan, uh, commanding officer of the CAG Global Fleet. This is Rotek Vestai Lunkij of the Klingon Assault Group. I am Kuch Epitai Lunkij, Supreme Commander of the Klingon Assault Group. So when we look at Mark Leonard and the variety of characters as he's produced, what do you think... When you first saw him as a Klingon, did anyone recognize him at all? Uh, no, it was uh, very hard to recognize because of the uh, level of prosthetics that uh, the makeup department uh, decided to go with. But, of course, with any of his uh, portrayals in his career, uh, Mark Leonard uh, pulled it off uh, gloriously. The article quotes saying that when he would go to conventions, people would ask, what was your favorite character to play? And he would always say Spock's father because he knew that that got the greatest crowd reaction. But he says that in reality, previous to the motion picture, it was the Romulan commander. What are some of your fondest memories of seeing him as a Romulan commander? Um, he, he was a good, he was a good commander. He, he was the first Romulan we saw. So that's the thing. He was defining the character at that time. And he, he played it almost Vulcan-like. He didn't really show emotions, but he, he also was a good commander. And that, that's the, the point of that episode is to show how, how much he was similar to Kirk. And I think he, he showed that well in just, in, 
being the the good captain, I mean, the, the one in charge who didn't really want a war, and he also cared about his, his crew. He had his, his friends there, and I think he, he showed that warmth as well as that, that good leadership. Now, to counter his unique look in the motion picture to those that he previously was in in Star Trek, he said that it took up to eight hours to put on his Klingon makeup. And the last time he did something like that was in Planet of the Apes. Now, a lot of Star Trek fans don't really think about that, that connection of Mark Leonard as General Urko, similar prosthetic setup with a Klingon. The big difference, he said, was the, the Planet of the Apes makeup, he had a jaw on the bottom. So it was much more uncomfortable. Whereas with the Klingon, he just had a nose piece and a forehead. Now, tell us a little bit about the we are amongst friends in the Klingon assault group. Chris, tell us a little bit about what the forehead and nose prosthetic is like, what it feels like when you have it on you. Uh, at first, it's kind of warm, but then you kind of get used to it. Like, I don't even notice it after a while. And that's what I've heard from, like, people who have used uh, prosthetics that are, like, glued down. And even the actors, after a while, they just forget about it, and it just becomes an extension of themselves. And that's kind of how it feels like for me. Yeah, he said that it felt very natural. It was awkward putting it on at first, but then he got the feel of it. And he didn't have these scenes for a long time. He actually put more time into the makeup than he was seen on screen. But there were problems with the makeup with regards to how this original Klingon head was set up because it was in two segments. We know modern-day Klingons, when we see them on Next Generation and going forward, it was just a headpiece in front. But this had a front and back piece. What do you think about that as far as a prosthetic? Do you know of any costumers that do the two-piece design with regards to costuming? Has that even been attempted as far as you know? I know some people who have done, like, full head where it, it starts at the front and goes almost all the way back, but not as two separate pieces, just as, like, one giant cap that goes on. And that's kind of in the motion picture. You see the foreheads go almost to the back of the head, unlike, like, TNG. And later, it stops at, like, the top of the head. and doesn't really go past that, except for, like, General Chang. He had a – he was bald, so it, you could see it go all the way back. But for everybody else, yeah, it really stopped halfway on. So let's just, you mentioned General Chang. Let's just pose this question out there. Do you think that the Klingons that we see in Next Generation, do they have that bony structure underneath their hairline? What do you think if they were to go fully bald, like we see in the motion picture? I would think that they've got that bony structure underneath the whole way, you know. Uh, yes. Um, uh, we even saw uh, when a Worf was uh, injured, that uh, when uh, the uh, Dr. Crusher and the other surgeon uh, replaces the spinal cord, yeah. Yeah. yes, and uh, coming up in CAG as a medical officer uh, and also medical experience uh, f from the U.S. Navy, those uh, bone structures would cover uh, the head, as we've seen in uh, iterations of Star Trek, and then as they go down the back, to me in my mind, uh, they would uh, get more recessed uh, into the skin and a more uh, uh, fuse with the actual uh, uh, spine uh, that we do not see under the skin because of evolution. So, but yeah, we have seen it in the past there. That's what the spine armor is for. It covers the back there because the spine is yeah. protruding out. So the spine armor is there to help prevent any injuries that could occur if you got hit in the spinal area.
And also, this is the first time we see this, what, what at the time we called Imperial Klingon. Imperial Klingon look, Imperial Klingon armor. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that armor and what a drastic difference it was from what fans have seen from the original series? Yeah, it was a significant upscale. They went from basically what were shirts to leather-looking, you know, vinyl-looking armor that was very tough and stiff, and it really defined the Klingons moving forward. It really hadn't changed from that point until Discovery came out. And so, you know, that, that iconic look, the, TO, the original series look is iconic too, but in a very different way. It's much more... more Maybe more, more maneuverable even, and much more flexible. The, uh, the later armor, you can hear when they're moving around. You can hear them creak as they move and stuff, uh, which really didn't happen with the original series. I feel like they basically upgraded to become the bikers of the galaxy. <laughs> I like to say the uh, rock stars of the universe. Now, Mark Leonard said that he doesn't even know what... The phaser, the Klingon phaser looks like because it was in his holster the entire time. Care to give us some insight on this? What, what, what do we know about decades later? Right. I think he had like the death sting style, the long nose one. Uh, but we, re- we really don't see it for very much. We see it in a holster and that's it. So we see a handle. Uh, it's not until later movies that we start to actually see someone pull one out and it's the, the long, long nose, what's called a death sting. Uh, and then we don't see the short, stubby ones until uh, Star Trek, I think Star Trek 3, we see someone with one of those. But they still, I think, various, when they're running across the ship and they're invading the Enterprise, they have various different kinds of, of disruptors. Now, Mark Leonard is quoted by saying that he has mixed emotions about the motion picture. He thought parts of it were too slow, it went on too long, and it had too much reverential and attitude towards the original Star Trek. The first time I saw them, oh wow, that was a long time ago, the first time I saw the motion picture, it, it is a very weird movie because it's like, it, it seems to rely on a lot of the kind of sci-fi that was available at the time, you know, Star Wars had come out, and so they had to try to def- to, to fight against that so it's got a lot of special effects there's the weird wormhole time warp thing and you're just like what is going on here like the first time i watched it it's like this is not the star trek we're used to but at the same time there was a lot of it that is the star trek we're used to so it's kind of like this i think they were trying to to to, to pull in more of the sci- general sci-fi fans at the same time without being too reliant on the original series just in case the viewers hadn't seen that and so that kind of, I think, had a big impact on it. I think when I saw it, it was really a, a, a wonderful vehicle to show off the new Enterprise. And as we know, as we uh, get, get older and into uh, sci-fi, these ships that are iconic uh, in our minds were stars of the show themselves. So... Uh, as in uh, some parts going slow, they had to give uh, some props, no pun intended, uh, to the ship itself uh, and try to balance that with the characters that we uh, uh, grow to love over a period of time. 
and then, of course, uh, to uh, show it off to a new audience, uh, uh, people like uh, from my generation, the early early 70s, that grew up in the uh, syndication of the uh, TOS uh, episodes. So they had to balance it uh, with the airtime of their personalities with the airtime of the ship. And, uh, yeah, it was slow, but how else could have been done uh, looking back on it? So we have it. Uh, it's there for posterity, and uh, I love it. We talk about the ships, and I don't think the Klingon ships in the motion picture get enough recognition. What's your viewpoint of when you see the awesomeness of them appearing? They were very impressive. Like it's, it, Up until that time, we had seen some Klingon ships, but they were... The models weren't that great. The fidelity of the pictures weren't that great. You know, they were a little blob on a view screen kind of thing, maybe a little flyby. And then we get these three ships, right? They're beautiful. They're firing torpedoes, and they're getting blown up. And it's just like, hey, they died gloriously in combat. <laughs> so they, they got their, their wish, but, you know, it, they did look really spectacular, especially on a big screen. You've got these huge ships, and it's a brilliant start to a movie you know you've got ship combat right at the beginning so you're sucking people in and you're seeing something that they've not seen before you know they had you know you had the star wars kind of shooty stuff but here you've got these three ships trying to fight against this immense enemy that is way more powerful than them and they still give it their their all you know and then and then yeah then boom and uh just uh the design that went into the original d7 and then uh, in the motion picture, the uh, Katinga-class battlecruiser, uh, I can't recall the name, but whoever did the design, they should have had the uh, image of, an, uh, of, a, uh, of a shark or a, or a lethal uh, a snake at that time. Because when you see those D7s or the Katingas, do you not hear, da da you know they are lethal and they are powerful and they are entirely maneuverable uh, way better than I, in my imagination of the uh, Constitution class, the Enterprise classes, and anything that's come before uh, after, even uh, into the TNG, uh, the uh, Negvar classes, and... Uh, the Vorcha, they they retain the uh, original uh, triangular design overall, but their maneuverability and their lethality, that just sticks out in my mind as a Klingon. So Mark Leonard, he said he was very proud of his contribution to his this movie and also the fact that he was able to play three different aliens, and up to this time in the Star Trek franchise, that was unheard of to have one person play three different aliens. And he said if he was ever asked to come back and play a Klingon, he would do that. So in an alternate universe, this style of Klingon does return, not only in Next Generation, but on the big screen. How would you react to that? The same way I reacted to Discovery, because the Discovery Klingons kind of harken back to that look. They had the ridges that went all the way back. And, yeah, they were bald, but, you know, that if you look at the TMP ones, they've only got really hair on the side and at the very back. 
So that was kind of the, the impact the discovery had is I saw that and was like, hey, they borrowed from that old movie. They borrowed from the old movie and they, they brought it back to, to us in a way that is different and new. But also there, there is a connection there. We had a lot of people who would go, oh, the Discovery Klingons don't look anything like the Klingons. But then when you look at the design sketches for the TMP, you go, hey, I can see the connection here. I can see what they were going for. And they just upscaled it the same way that the Klingons went from the original series to the motion picture. A huge difference in look. People didn't really freak out too much. And then Discovery came on. People freaked out. But it was really that same kind of difference it, it, all over again. And it, it didn't really take that much away from it for me. You know, I, as a fan, as a Klingon fan, I, I love it. And I would love to see more of that look. Like maybe there's a time period between the motion picture and those later movies where we can see more of those Klingons. Maybe they're from a specific part of Khotnosh. That's how all the Klingons look, you know. Who knows? We don't know, so we'll have to wait and see. But it would be great to have that kind of alternate universe, maybe, where they all look like that. You know, it, I, I would be fascinated. Like, I love the look of all the Klingons, so maybe I'm not the best person to... <laughs> Well, first of all, uh, giving uh, props to uh, Mark Leonard for doing what he did uh, as an actor and gracing us with his talent. And as uh, uh, Klingons have progressed uh, through the franchise, uh, nobody outside of working for CBS or Paramount can really say that's not Klingon. Oh, but that is... I mean, if in, unless you're getting a paycheck from those two entities, um, okay, if you like it, if you don't like it, fine. If you have to say something about it, fine. Move on. Okay? Uh, it's there now. Uh, it's not going to change. And to me, the makeup, yeah, it's nice because the, the visuals for it, the uh, costuming is beautifully crafted, but really... How is a Klingon made? And that's in the heart and the mind of the actors. And that's where we have to say, well done, bravo. I mean, uh, Mary Chifo, uh, uh, Chancellor Laurel, she went through two Klingon dictionaries to get things right. And most of the actors, uh, Shazad Latif, and all the Klingon actors and all the crew uh, for that matter, have professed to being a Trek fan in one way or another. So it's not what we see uh, on the makeup or in the uh, costuming, but it's what's in the heart of the actors and the time and effort that they put into bringing out the Klingon warriors within themselves so we can look on screen and uh, idolize and appreciate their work through all of those layers. I mean, come on, you, uh, you people listening, put a, a set of Klingon teeth and you try talking in Klingon and with perfect diction that the sound editors require and you tell me, oh, those Klingon, those actors are on screen. They're not Klingon. Well, they're more Klingon than we will ever try to be. So uh, that's my take on it. That's the, what's really Klingon. It's what in the heart of each actor we see on screen. Now, some of you speak Klingon, and we know that Mark Leonard is credited of 
having the first words spoken in Klingon. His efforts there. Commentary on it? It's, that's a fascinating story. You know, he was given the lines at the very last minute because the original ones that they had, they didn't like. And so, was it, uh, uh, James Doohan and John, uh, I can't remember the guy's last name. They went into a room together and they figured out these words and, and John and, and Jimmy Doohan recorded them and gave this recording to uh, Mark like right before and he listened to it and he spat out these lines. And at that time, you know, that was not commonplace. You didn't hear alien languages. You know, you had a few lines here in Kalatu, Niktu or whatever from the day the Earth stood. So, but that was very uncommon. And so that really made the Klingons alien. Like you saw these guys speaking a weird language. They looked very alien and they acted in a way that was very different from what we expected. And then, you know, what he did, he started something that then Mark Okren was able to continue on in Star Trek Three. you know, because they went, hey, we want these guys to speak Klingon. We've already done a little bit. Now we want to expand on that. How can we do that? Okay, we got somebody. And Mark went, okay, I'm going to go back to this original Klingon that was used. I take it and I form it into a language. You know, I start off with those and I make sure those sounds mean something and that they mean what the subtitle said and there's even extra lines in the background that don't have subtitles and he tried to use those as well and so you know it, it started something that continues on today the Klingon Language Institute is still incredibly strong we're publishing books in Klingon novels in Klingon there's Klingon works are coming out all the time uh, there's groups that meet and talk and read these books and they communicate and they chat in Klingon all day long spoken and text you know so and it all started with these few lines spoken by Mark Leonard on the screen at the beginning of a movie from the late 70s, you know. And so it's, what, 40 years later now, and it's still going strong. So that's, that's a testament to his acting ability to create this world that we can all still play in. And we can, you can watch those movies now if you're a Klingon speaker, and you can go, oh, I know what's being said. I understand these things. And... That, that continuity is, why I think, one of the things that makes Star Trek fantastic. That the same Klingon that was spoken in the 70s is the same Klingon that's spoken in Discovery today. And, you know, that, that language hasn't changed. It, you know, it's been, it's been maybe a little misused by the TNG folks here and there in Deep Space Nine. <laughs> but they still, they did what they could. And, you know, at that time there were not a lot of resources for Klingon translation like there is today. And so I, I, I'm... I'm very grateful that he put, took the time to learn how to pronounce these things the way they wanted them to be said, and he, he spoke them on, on screen, and that they made it into the movie. You know, that now, you mentioned the Klingon Language Institute. We are also members of the Klingon Assault Group. Want to talk a little bit about the Klingon Assault Group and what makes it different from other Star Trek fan clubs? Well, what makes it different is the Klingons. That's the big difference. <laughs> so the, the Klingon Assault Group was founded as a primarily as a costuming group in the days before there was such a thing as cosplay. You know, no one had that that thought at that time. It was this predates the 501st. I have right, to mention this, this. This was the Klingon Assault Group was founded in the late 80s uh, by John Halverson, and uh, he started it in his 
living room, I think it was, or kitchen or something like that with some people. And then they came to Starbase Indy, where we are right now, and they got up on stage and they said, we are Klingons. And they were dressed as Klingons and they looked like Klingons. And they predated so many clubs that have come and gone since then. And, you know, it's 30, 33 years later, 32 years later, and we're still here. We're the largest fan, Klingon fan club on the planet. We have the most aliens from across all the different Star Trek races. They come to us. They want to play with us because we know how to have fun. And that's our number one rule is to have fun. And that's what we're here for. And so if you want to have fun dressing up as a Star Trek alien or a Klingon, Klingon Assault Group is the place to be. What do you love being about being in the Klingon Assault Group? I love uh, being in charge of the global fleet. I have made friends from uh, Iceland, uh, Sweden, uh, England, Scotland, France, uh, Germany, Poland, Slovenia, uh, Russia. Uh, my, uh, my personal achievement uh, was a recruiting in Israel, our uh, first uh, seven members there. And uh, John Halverson, uh, rest in peace, uh, he tasked me with that possibility to do so when he uh, uh, found out uh, of my uh, affinity to Israel. And uh, they're going strong out there. And also to our brothers and sisters in uh, Japan and uh, Australia. That's what I uh, uh, hold uh, very dear to my heart, that any time of the day that I can reach out and talk to our friends in Russia or Israel or uh, Australia and say, hey, I got this idea here. And it's just beautiful to just go with these people and also our forging friendships with them outside of anything uh, Klingon. I know my, my friends in Israel, uh, one is a new father, uh, our girl in Australia. He's, uh, she's, uh helps in uh, food kitchens uh, doing the cooking. Uh, and it's just beautiful to see these people, talk with them, uh, video messages with them on Facebook, and just have a talk. Hey, what's going on over there? How are you doing? What's uh, next in your life? So uh, that's what I hold dear, the friendships that I've been able to forge uh, within CAG. Now, your costumes for Klingon Assault Group are epic. I mean, you're doing Andorians, Klingons. You could go on and on and on because the Klingon Assault Group encompasses all alien life forms that are found in Star Trek. What motivates you to costume at such a high level? I think just the fun, you know, getting involved with everyone else and everything. Like, everyone else you meet is doing the same thing, just having fun, you know, trying to create, like, yeah, camaraderie. It's a good way to put it. I, I, I joined CAG 25 years ago when I lived in the U.K., before I came to this country. And uh, when I came to the States... CAG members were the people who welcomed me and, you know, brought me into their houses and said, we want to be your friend. We don't care where you're from or what you do or anything like that. You like Klingons. We like Klingons. Let's hang out and have fun together. And the journey has been amazing. I have met so many different people from so many different walks of life, backgrounds, and they all have this same love they all love star trek they all love klingons they all love to interact together and have fun and that that has been yeah the camaraderie is is just amazing in this club so if you were to meet mark leonard in stovokor what would you say to him just uh thank him for uh, gracing us with his talent 
I mean, um, he had a long enough career. He was in different genres, uh, westerns, I believe, uh, dramas, and this little, you know, little, some uh, actors may consider trivial, but he will always be in the mythology of uh, Star Trek as Sarek, as the Romulan commander, and as uh, the Klingon commander. And he's part of our world now, and we're better for it. Yeah, I would say thank you. That's pretty much, you know, it, yeah, that sums it up pretty well. Like, there's there's not much more I can say besides that. Like, he he helped create something that is, you know, still going strong today. And, you know, I remember him most from The Next Generation playing Sarek. And that, con- again, that continuity that he brought by playing that same character over such a wide span of time, just, it, it brought it all, it brings it all together. And it, and it, it, it makes it helps make Star Trek what it is. So where can our listeners find out more about the Klingon Language Institute and the Klingon Assault Group? Uh, you can find the Klingon Language Institute at the KLI.org. We have uh, a website full of information and resources on the Klingon language. We have a Discord server where you can come and practice your Klingon in text or it's spoken with other people. Uh, for the Klingon Assault Group, you can come to CAG.org. We have members and ships all over the place, as Cordan was saying, all over the world. It doesn't matter where you are. You can come. You can play Klingons with us, and we will we'll play Klingons with you. And that's, that's the fun. You know, there's not really much else you can say. Kapla! And as always, we're going to close out this episode by discussing one of the advertisements that's found in Starlog. This one's in the classified section. Trekkies are enterprising lovers. New bumper sticker. $2. Send it. $2 to this address in Manchata, Texas. Would you like to have a bumper sticker that says Trekkies are enterprising lovers? Yeah, I mean, that would be neat to have. It's too bad they don't show a picture of it in here. That was one of the things that was popular in the 70s and 80s. Our slogan bumper stickers. You know, they were long. Now the bumper stickers tend to be smaller of size. I remember loving putting bumper stickers on my parents' cars, and they really didn't like having bumper stickers on the cars. They always said it looks junky. Yeah, I mean, I don't really put a lot of them on my car. But, but yeah, it's fun to read those when you're... You know, I hate to say when you're driving and you see all these bumper stickers on the cars. And even at, even at, um, at con parking lots. When you go to a con and you walk through the parking lot and you see all these bumper stickers on people's cars, some of them are very interesting. I think the thing now though more so is like decals on the glass. Yeah. Yeah, all the, all the stickers on the cars. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but then it was just a long bumper sticker. That, that was the par for the course back then. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu.